Go ahead and click live. Um, I was doing a little bit of research on the website and I saw that you guys uh, were able to dress up in who your favorite sports team was, but I couldn't see, uh, I didn't know if it was the Chiefs or which sports team is that? You got it. You got okay. it. I'm still a season ticket holder, Kansas City Chiefs. In fact, if I turn things around, you would really know that I don't need to bore you with that. I love that, um, kind of expressing your favorite team there. And I'm a Flyers fan. I saw there was another Flyers fan in there. Yeah, there uh, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great company culture. I'd like to welcome everybody back to Alabama Care. Today we have Mr. Steve Wooderson, the CEO of the Council of State Administrators of Vocational Rehab, Rehabilitation. And today we're going to be talking about the history, mission, and work at the national level. At this point, I'd like to hand it over. Mr. Wooderson, if you would introduce yourself. Well, thanks for having me, Steve Wooderson. And I am the, the CEO of the Council of State Administrators. And uh, I've been in the business for a while. I actually started as a rehabilitation counselor in 1981. I had just come off of active duty and I, you know what, I didn't have a job. And I saw this posting in the, newspaper back in those days right and so i began as a counselor in 1981 and have been in the business ever since um now what kind of um so you started off as a vr counselor that is very one-on-one -on -one with the client receiving services there um and you you've grown through that process gone from a counselor um and then you know you've had a few different positions what happened after vr counselor well it's uh it's been a long journey but it's been a good journey. Yeah, I was in Missouri with the Missouri VR agency for 20 years. Uh, first four was a counselor and then had the honor of moving into uh, some local and regional kinds of leadership roles. And later in my career in Missouri, I was uh, had responsibility over the services side of, of the VR program. And then in um, 2001, I left Missouri and went to the state of Iowa, had a similar role with the Iowa VR agency there. But after a few months, uh, I was uh, very fortunate to have been selected as a state director. So I was a state director of the Iowa program until late in 2010. And I became the CEO of CSABR in November of 2010. So 41 years in the business, uh, worked at uh, about every level, I guess, that you can in this profession. Yeah, I think that's um, very crucial to run an organization is to have that ground level experience. Um, I have a family member and she has a disability, receives services from Department of Mental Health. Um, and in helping her, I am, I am uh, her guardian. But if ever there are big decisions that have to be made, it always comes down to having that experience one-on-one -on -one with her is, does this decision, will she smile more or will she act out more and say she doesn't like this? So having that experience with the individual on a one-on-one -on -one level gives you the insight. And I feel like a lot of people say that is a lot of laws or guidelines are being made or have been made, but it really doesn't uh, do what they want it to do at the individual basis. So having that well-rounded experience there. Now, um, yeah, there's really a passion that, that grows as a result of that one-on-one -on -one experience. And I'll be honest with you, I was probably a reluctant VR professional. I really 
didn't plan my educational journey to go into the field. And it wasn't until I began to interact with individuals and see the change that it made in their lives, just like what you're you're discussing and and see it even in my own family members and that passion you know has has continued to grow over the years mm -hmm. now uh speaking about that passion is there a, a case that you remember from your early days as a vr counselor that really sticks with you as kind of a success story and a and a moving inside of yourself a feeling you know it's um to, to point out one would be very difficult but i'll tell you the one that comes to my mind um, and this was a young lady. I, I worked in a college town when I first started as a VR counselor in Lala, Missouri. And uh, one of the students who was experiencing mental health challenges uh, came to us really struggling with her academic career and um, applied for service, determined eligibility. Um, she was a really a brilliant student, although just really challenged with managing her, her mental health, mental illness. Um, she graduated from college and that was an incredible success in and of itself. But what really sticks out about this story is after I had left that position and moved on to another one, mail from my former office was forwarded to me and it was a card from her and she was writing from Beijing, China. The wow. services that we had provided for her allowed her to get an entry level job in the state of Missouri, lost touch with her, and then she was eventually able to be promoted to a position that then landed her in being domiciled in Beijing. And so I just think what a mind blowing experience that was. I was just a kid from central Missouri. I didn't know much about the rest of the world and to see how that changed her life um, still warms my heart. Yeah, and at such a crucial time for all of us really is transitioning out of our parents' house, out of the education system, going to that next level of independence college to have that support from VR. Um, and I'm sure she spoke to you in that letter of how much it meant to her and gave her confidence there that I've never been to Beijing. I wanna to go to Beijing. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so for anyone that's unfamiliar with the Council of State Administrators of Vocational Rehab, if you could give an overview and a little bit of history on what the organization is and does. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So uh, CSAVR is uh, the Council of State Administrators of Vocational Rehabilitation. I represent them as CEO, and it is a nonprofit membership organization that was or, uh, incorporated in Washington, D.C. in 1967. We have had, uh, I'm the third CEO of CSAVR, so it's not uncommon for us to get in this position and have some longevity with uh, the profession itself. CSAVR is governed by the state vocational rehabilitation directors across the country. So I don't work for a VR agency. I work for the directors of those agencies. And so essentially we represent, I say 20,000 employees of the state VR programs across the country. I can't be tied to that figure because I don't have anything to empirically prove that. But at one yeah. point we thought it was around 20,000 folks that work for these different state agencies. And we 
We provide legislative advocacy opportunities for learning exchanges, education. We work with employers through a national network who have shown interest in learning about how and to then reach out uh, in, in hiring people with disabilities. Um, and really kind of the bottom line is we, we tell the story of the public VR program. Mm. Um, it sounds a little bit like uh, business consulting for uh, or, or like executive training and consulting for the VRs across the country and kind of yeah. letting each other know what's going on. Uh, you did touch on one thing there is legislative advocacy. That's something that um, I, I'm kind of new to, but what are you, what is the best way for an individual or a family to kind of advocate? Yeah, well, it really is what I said last is individually to be able to tell your story. Uh, that's what really speaks to those who are in positions and making decisions of uh, legislative significance. How does the public vocational rehabilitation enable my son or my daughter or me as an individual with a disability to engage in the workplace? And what is it that is needed in order to be able to sustain my place in the workplace? Or what is it that I need or my family member needs to be able to progress in uh, a career? So it's really, it's really telling that story and then backing that up with good, solid evidence. What really supports an ability, the ability to make decisions about any public piece of legislation is how you are able to support that with the evidence and data that's needed uh, to make good, solid decisions. Yeah, and I imagine it, it feels very good from a voc rehab standpoint where you're saying, if we receive this reimbursement from insurance, Medicaid, the state, what that looks like is X amount of individuals have received employment, gainful employment in the community. Uh, here are the numbers, here's, here's how well they're doing. Now, employment is, it kind of, I feel like it's a newer thing in the last five, 10 years. It wasn't something that was really focused on in the 70s, in the 80s. All right. Is that true? Uh, yes and no. Um, can I take you on a little historical timeline that might answer that question just a little bit? Please. <clears throat> the public program actually is now over 100 years old. So wow. uh, employment obviously was a key component early on, uh, but it is morphed, it's uh, changed over the years. And uh, in 1920, um, post World War One, the Smith Fest Act was passed. And that was the first federal piece of legislation that formalized the, the national program. Now there were some states in 1919, 1918 that had their own state programs, but 20 is when it actually started. But to get to your point, yeah, over the years, it has changed, it has progressed, it's uh, tried to stay up with the times. And then um, really um, 1973, I would suggest, is probably what we would refer to as the contemporary base legislation that really still drives the program today and that the rehab act of 1973 now it's been amended several times um the last being in 2014 and now to get to specifically your point the issue of competitive integrated employment has been 
uh, a priority in both definition and, and delivery of services that lead to the outcome of competitive integrated employment with a great deal of intensity, maybe that's the right word, uh, since mm -hmm. 2014. So it's always been an employment program, always been, that's been the, the marker for the program. But in 2014, there were a number of changes that occurred that um, uh, really um, placed even a greater emphasis on how to define and how to move towards that outcome. Yeah, on community living. And it's so important for everybody to go to work and produce something that you feel proud of um, and to be a part of the greater society in those interactions there. And I think it's hard to, to live a fulfilled life if you don't have those experiences, um, you know, weekly where you're going and being part of a team, almost in like a, a sports team kind of concept where you feel good about what you're doing, um, you know, and producing it as a team there. Now, um, you mentioned uh, was kind of from the employer side. You guys run quite a big network of huge employers that are really taking traction to this and making an effort to learn more about the community uh, and, and take effort to employ people with disabilities. If you would talk a little bit about NET there. Yeah, the uh, National Employment Team, NET, is um, a, I don't want to call it a business line because it doesn't generate revenue, but it's a specific thread for the Council of State Administrators of Vocational Rehabilitation to provide some infrastructure uh, between employers, businesses that are um, wanting to maybe create a more conducive environment for people with disabilities to come to work, or maybe they even want to uh, develop a specific initiative, look at their, their job descriptions to ensure that they're in keeping and not exclusive, but more inclusive for those that uh, wish to pursue employment in their, their, their industry. So the national employment team is um, that thread of what we do. We have staff who connect with uh, businesses who reach out to us through a variety of different methods that we have out there. And then it's our job, CSADR staff job, to then connect them with the state vocational rehabilitation program agencies that are actually delivering the services and interacting with the individuals that are seeking careers as well. We also have a talent acquisition portal. It is a portal for those that we serve who are looking for employment can connect their uh, resumes or job histories with our technology and then businesses who are seeking vetted, qualified talent who happen to be people with disabilities, we can make those connections. So um, much of that has been in place for a number of years. But I will say that in the uh, 2014 amendments, that it, it really boistered and affirmed what we were already doing. And that is that We've always focused on the individual career seeker with a disability. That's who we've been serving since 1920. But also it acknowledges that business is an equal customer in the public vocational rehabilitation program. So it really um, gives the authority and the ability for us to allocate resources 
in working with business. And let me be sure I'm clear of what I'm saying. There's a CSAVR side of the house, that's the national organization. Uh, and that's where we are serving, connecting businesses with the local state, local and state agencies. But it's the, the state vocational rehabilitation programs that are actually connecting directly with the businesses and connecting them with individuals that are seeking careers. So you guys will go after kind of a national account, uh, a national or international uh, company and say, hey, do you guys, would you guys want to be a part of this? Uh, there's great talent here in this community. They are actively looking for jobs. And then once they say, yeah, we want to be a part of that, then the local state via, uh, vocational rehabs will work with their local offices or warehouses or whatever that looks like. Um, you're, you're exactly and, right. And really, there's a variety of different ways that, that may happen. It may be a national um, initiative by a major corporation and they push it down to their local and regional representatives or it could very well be an in-state operation that is looking to us um, develop um, you know a specific um, strategy as well so yeah there's a variety of ways that that could unfold but you're right at the end of the day it's making that connection with that individual uh, career seeker and that in individual employer uh, to be able to connect the talents with the skills that are needed for that particular job. Yeah, and I would say to anybody that is looking for employment who receives services through VR um, or maybe a family member of somebody that's looking for employment utilizes, it's like a headhunters kind of a thing. You have people actively taking your resume and going, hey, they, they're looking for employment. Hey, they're looking for employment. Instead of putting out a resume on maybe uh, LinkedIn or something like that, or Indeed, and, and waiting to hear back. You have people actively going out on your behalf and looking to get you, uh, you know, a dream job. Now we have Tina Doris says, what's the name of the talent portal? So it is NET, um, the National Employment Team. And uh, Mrs. Doris, what we'll do is we'll put a link in the chat for you uh, that goes to, can we use the link from uh, CSAVR? Um, the one that has the net on yeah, it. Let me get you some specific information. The portal itself is accessible by way of the local vocational rehabilitation counselor. They're the ones that would uh, assist individuals who come to the VR agencies upload uh, their application. So, but we can give you more information by connecting you with our, our, um, our website to include how to get in touch with the state vocational rehabilitation agencies. Well, yeah, a, so, most of these are Alabama, I would suppose, but wherever you may be. Um, yeah, because we're going live and we're on the internet. We have no idea. Um, no but we'll put in the link, um, uh, Mrs. Doris, for ADRS here in Alabama that goes to their net um, for that. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, quite a big national corporations. Would you like to highlight a few just to give examples? Well, uh, as soon as I start doing that, I'm going to miss some. But You're going to leave us. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a good it's a good healthy list, but you know CVS is a good example. Um, Microsoft is a good example. Uh, I know that we have uh, those in the airline industry as well. So um, it's it's a long long list. Um, speaking of the airline industry, I should also be sure that we I, I, I communicate and at the local level as well. So we've got national companies, but um, you know, quite honestly, um, I can't give you a percentage, but I would say it's fair to assume that as many folks are going to, uh, that we serve are going to work 
with local businesses as as many that are going to work for national companies as well. So there's got to be that balance between the two. Yeah. And it's always up to the individual. If you'd rather work at a mom and pop shop, then that's where you would start your focus on. If you'd rather work in a, a national chain, maybe climb that ladder a little bit, then that option is available to you. Um, you right. mentioned that <clears throat> these services are 100 years old and they really started in about 1920. Um, and I feel like that's the case where a lot of these services originated from people coming back from war or for active from active duty. And they they needed additional services to be competitive in employment. Now, as a veteran yourself, I want to say thank you for your service. Um, but do you kind of see that a lot of these services originated out of veterans and then they went to encompass uh, more individuals? Yeah, I think that's a very insightful. And, and if we just kind of take uh, a couple of slices in time, post-World War I, um, you know, the, the, um, the number of sailor soldiers that were returning with significant physical disabilities. And that was the onset of developing that national infrastructure and really focused again on um, the, 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 the physical kinds of needs that were there. And so the types of services that you would have seen more typically in the 20s and 30s would have been um, uh, prosthesis, uh, durable medical goods, things that, and I, I use this um, with some um, latitude, fix or mitigate the existence of a disability, if you understand what I'm saying. In other words, we're not, we're, we're trying to ameliorate or remedy what the disability might be. So that was kind of the old medical model. And then as, as legislation through the years began to respond to generally the needs of the public, for example, the Social Security Act in the 30s that began to um, expand services to individuals and then uh, services for individuals with blindness and visual impairment. Uh, you begin to see a further expansion, and then we come to post-World War II. And after World War II, there was a greater awareness of the further width and breadth of individuals with disabilities, particularly as we now refer to PS, uh, PSTD, uh, PTSD, mm -hmm. excuse me. Um, and so the, the expansion post World War II was more uh, in looking at how to bring in individuals with cognitive and, uh, and mental health conditions. And then we progressed more and more as we get into the 60s and kind of get into the civil rights movement uh, to where we are today. But you're spot on. Uh, events in the history of our country have driven how we uh, interact with and begin to serve individuals with disabilities. Now we've referenced the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. And to me, that is the thing that really um, was for my aunt. She has an intellectual disability, cerebral palsy, um, and that really provided a wave of services for her. Now we've also mentioned 2014. What's the difference between 73 and 14? Yeah, it's a world of difference. The vision that was set in, in 73 is still the same. And that's uh, moving toward the inclusion of people with disabilities in, in the workplace. In 2014, um, there were, um, I, I, I'll just highlight a couple 
uh, the uh, maybe the more significant elements. Mm -hmm. um, prior to 2014, about 25% of all that were being served by the public VR program were um, students in transition, so youth and students. Yep. In 2014, that legislation um, placed a mandate upon the VR program to serve, um, to, to reserve a specific amount of dollars or percentage of dollars for youth and students. So now in just those eight years, we've gone from 25% of, of those we serve being youth and students, now we're over 50% are youth and students. So um, that's a major change. It really um, is more than what I would refer to as a generational change. It is really a change uh, from the uh, very beginning throughout the years of the VR program. And then, uh, as I mentioned also, um, that the 2014 legislation validated that we have two customers. And so we're beginning to see, um, as a result of the emphasis on youth and students and the balancing of services to uh, individuals and the business customers, that it's really changed the, the um, infrastructure, if, if you will, of the entire VR program. Um, because of the talents and skills that are needed to serve the population um, as a result of the demand from the marketplace as well. And then maybe um, maybe I can't give you a, a specific intersection with this next issue and the 2014 legislation, but it certainly is continuing, is that increased um, emphasis on the engagement of the individual or the customer, the client is be the old term in the development of their own plan for employment. You know, mm. uh, early on, as we mentioned, we were working under that medical model and that's continued to change as we have progressed through history to where now it is definitely, clearly uh, a driver for the way that we go about doing our business. It's the way it always should have been, but you know, history kind of teaches us where we need to be. The individual being served is in the driver's seat and it's the VR counselor's expertise that is there to help facilitate and guide. Yeah, I think putting the individual um, kind of at the head of where they're going, their person-centered planning, them having a voice in what they want to do. And then us as a community and organizations coming around saying, okay, well, this type of service will help get you there. Um, I want to comment on a few things there. So really 2014 expanded services earlier uh, for individuals, kind of early intervention, which I think is so crucial because the earlier you can get in there and start serving and helping individuals and families, that's got to pay crazy dividends even 20 years down the line. The difference from not receiving services in early intervention uh, to just receiving services in high school uh, has to have exponential returns there on the success of that individual's life forever. Um, and then the other thing is you mentioned that it it kind of identified both both sides. So you're serving individuals, but also it's like 
I so just getting back to school. School's back in session now, but it would be like getting a kid ready to go back to school with their backpack and you know giving them names of their teachers, those kinds of things. But also going to the teacher and saying, "Hey, this is my son or my daughter," and introducing them. Uh, that it makes it 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 brings the greater community. It brings more awareness, uh, and I think that's how you get kind of system change uh, instead of just kind of spearheading and walking into it and not having both parties on the same at the same table. Um, okay, so let's get back to voc rehab. So you mentioned there's 72 voc rehabs. Is there one in every state? Actually, there are 78. 78. 78. If I misspoke, I apologize, but 78. Yeah, and the way that that works, uh, you know, you say, well, why are there 78 when there's 50 states? Um, uh, it's pretty simple. And that is that we have uh, three different configurations, if you will, of state vocational rehabilitation programs in the country. In some states, there is one organization that serves all individuals with all disabilities who are seeking VR agents, VR services. In other states, we have two. We have one organization in state that is serving specifically individuals with visual impairment and blindness, mm. and then one agency that serves all others. So when you add uh, the three different kinds of configuration, we call them combined, general, and blind agencies, and then consider that we have a number of territories and the District of Columbia, that's how we get 78 total. Gotcha. So here in Alabama, we have the Alabama Institute for the Deaf and the Blind. Does that fall under uh, CSAVR? Not under CSAVR. I don't know if it falls within the Alabama Vocational Rehabilitation Agency. What I will say is that the state agency, the state VR agency in uh, Alabama is considered combined. So yep. uh, services for all individuals seeking VR services um, would come under that umbrella. But you make a good point, if, if I can go there, and that is that the, the vocational, the public vocational rehabilitation program is a federal program. So it's federal law. That's the Rehabilitation Act as amended, right? And the funding comes from the state, from the federal government, and it goes to the states. However, each state is given the authority within parameters to administer the program in their own way. I used to be in Iowa. And so in Iowa, I had um, not just the VR program, but I also had the program that adjudicates social security disability claims in my agency. And some agencies, I can think of the state of Oklahoma, for example, their school for the deaf, school for the blind, falls within the VR agency. So it's all dependent upon how that individual state sets up their state level infrastructure. So there will be differences from state to state. The federal program and the eligibility processes are all the same, but there will be individual differences from state to state as to what may be within the umbrella of the VR program and actually how some of the services may be delivered as well. Yeah. And so let's say here in Alabama, Alabama Department of Rehabilitation Services wants to make changes to that. You provide some legislative consulting so that they can then go to their local legislators here in Alabama and say, hey, we realize that uh, Missouri or Iowa has this kind of setup. 
um, we'd like to legislate that this is maybe a more effective setup, those kinds of things. You know, we, we can and we would if we were being invited. We also want to respect the fact that individual states uh, have their own um, um, implications that we certainly don't want to step on. But here's what we've done frequently is a state will come to us and say, hey, this draft legislation is on the table. Tell us how this might be um, similar to something that's going on in another state. You know, maybe there's a, a thought about adding programs to the VR agency or separating out. And then we can go out and we have done frequently gathered information from states with that similar kind of uh, infrastructure and shared that with them in a way that they can then choose to use it in the manner in which they think is most appropriate for their state. We think that that's really a, a big part of our job is helping inform states what else is going on across the country uh, in order of in the, along the lines of infrastructure, service delivery, processes, so that they can learn from one another. I feel like I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here, but I feel like sometimes with legislation and I haven't done much of it myself is sometimes our representatives can feel like they're being bombarded and it's our, it's our, um, you know, we should be educating our representatives because uh, they probably don't know and don't have the information there. But when they see, uh, uh, you know, 20 different things that are legislated, it can get a little overwhelming, I think, sometimes. They don't know the difference, differences between them. If you could pick one thing that you would legislate for on the, you know, maybe state or, or federal level, which one would you be legislating for? This is going to sound really wonkish, but um, you ask, and so I'll give you my honest response. And that is every state is enabled to fully maximize the federal dollars that are available. And if I can give you a little explanation for that, I don't know the case in Alabama. Uh, so this isn't um, uh, speaking to their scenario, but the federal dollars come at a cost to the state. So the federal dollars will go to the state, but in order for the state to capture all those federal dollars that are available, the state has to match through their own general revenue funds, a percentage of those to be able to pull them down. And so the reality is at this point in time, not every state maximizes those federal dollars because they've not, the state legislators uh, legislatures have not uh, allocated general revenue funds to match those dollars. So that's what's top of my mind right now. Whether or not it applies in Alabama or not, I, I'd have to go to my spreadsheet and find out. But that is a national, a national concern uh, opportunity at this point. Yeah, um, I would be very interested to know if Alabama is maximizing that. <clears throat> As I understand it, it's called the FMAP, and it's for like every dollar that the state spends, the government will give you kind of free money in, in matching that. Here in Alabama, I think we fall either three to five on the top reimbursements. So it, that is always a big thing for me is legislators need to know if you're going to invest uh, at your local state here, um, it, it, if you put this in the disability community, many of the, the individuals, first of all, it's going to 
greatly increase uh, services and opportunities for the individual. But also those that are supporting them through this process, it's not like they typically move to California. They're here, the caregivers are here in state. They're gonna reinvest that money, their taxes, what they buy is gonna be here, it's gonna be kept in state. Um, and I don't know if we're, we're maximizing that here in Alabama. I'd be very interested to hear that. And I think that's a great thing for legislators to know is, um, you know, here in Alabama, we're, you know, let's say number four on the FMAP. We need to be taking advantage of that so that we can go lower on the list and be more self-sufficient um, long-term there. So, uh, speaking of VRs in different states, let's talk a little bit about the communication. So if I move, if my family member moves to Georgia or Pennsylvania, how does that transition work for her if she's receiving VR services here in Alabama currently? Yeah. Well, going back to that infrastructure that I mentioned earlier, each state will operate the agency uh, according to their state policies and, and rules. Um, so it's not a transfer of, of eligibility or services because there are so many variables that would go in from going from one state to another. You know, um, there may be um, different policies as far as um, participation, or there may be different policies that restrict the number of people that are being served in a given state. So uh, the process as far as determination of eligibility and the federal legislation that governs the program stays the same, but each state will have their, their own variances depending upon what may be um, uh, present for uh, policies and procedures in that state. So uh, that was a little bit of a, an obtuse response, but if I, if I had a family member or I were moving from one state to another and wanted to continue vocational rehabilitation services, I would reach out before I, before I moved and talk with them. Um, I would engage the counselor that I have currently in the state of Alabama and say, what do you think is the best way to find out what might be available in another state? So start that conversation early and often, and hopefully that'll give you the information that is needed uh, before, uh, before making that move. I know that is something that a lot of families and individuals feel kind of may hinder them, um, as if they are receiving services and they move to a different state, they may be placed on a waiting list again, and they may have, might have been on that waiting list here in their own state for a number of years before receiving services. Um, and I believe that services are given based on severity. So kind of like if you didn't have supports or family or anybody to help out, um, what would your day look like? And if you severely need those services, then you're kind of put more toward the top of the list. Um, so that's how you can think of that waiting list a little bit there. I'm going to acknowledge chat. Kim Spangler, uh, is a, is this is kind of a Alabama specific question, so I'll ask it. And if you're not familiar with it, um, we'll move on. So how has VR in Alabama established services for students in a think college, both in state and out of state for students who qualify for WIOA, but are receiving a certificate rather than a degree? Does any of that make sense? I can't answer. I can't answer that, but it's a good example uh, from state to state how uh, some practice will will be different, and it um, may have um, it may be based in resources available. It may be a state 
uh, policy that's outside the reach of even the VREC. So um, I can't answer that. Um, but hopefully you can go to your state VREC and ask that question. Yeah, Kim, we'll get uh, Mrs. Jane Elizabeth Birchall back on. Uh, that's the place to go. Yeah. So he's the one to go to. Um, what are some trends that uh, you're seeing in VR in the last few years? Uh, and are you noticing that certain services are being utilized more now than in the past? Um, well, first of all, remember, I've been in the business for 41 years, so I've seen a lot of trends. <laughs> you know, I've seen a, I've seen a lot over over the years. Um, I would say um, there are probably, you know, a couple of trends that um, are beginning to 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 emerge just a, a little bit, and some are driven by legislation, and some are driven by uh, by the community. Well, certainly the trend uh, for serving more students and youth is is up, as I've already as I've already indicated, and so has the uh, services for uh, business and employers that are seeking seeking talent. Um, again, the individual engagement as well. And then beyond that, I think it's a matter of responding kind of to uh, the, the, the new workplace. You know, and this mm. is kind of the trend and what I think maybe what we see in the next few years. Um, the Rehabilitation Act uh, will be author reauthorized at some point. And so giving you the background of students and youth and, and, and the business, that pushed a new trend. So the next trend may very well be whatever is on Congress's mind. But mm. we do know that uh, we are in a new and emerging workplace and workforce. And that means that um, the trends are towards mapping that future, looking to work with the businesses in a matter uh, in a manner to better understand what that future workforce looks like. What are the skills that are needed that are different? Um, we are vocational rehabilitation counselors, and we need to stay in the middle of what is happening in that in the business world. But we've got to engage with the business world, continue to be able to kind of prepare people and map that future out. What, what do they need? Uh, how do we go about um, uh, better preparing our candidates with the skills that are needed? What is required in order for what is likely this long-term shift to more remote and virtual workplaces? And the increased benefits and awareness of, uh, of being in the lane of increasing diversity in our workplace, improving upon the equity in our workplace, inclusion in the workplace, and the accessibility in the emerging workplace. So whether those are trends or where we think things are going in the future, I think it, it's, it's a continuum uh, for us to be able to um, Try to keep a finger on the pulse and be visionary, less reactionary. Yeah, um, I think if you just always 
allow the individual to be the center focal point there and lead that way. And that's kind of what I'm hearing has really come out of that 2014. And we're emphasizing now is this is your life. Take control of let us know how we can serve you, how we can help you get there. Now at CSAVR, you mentioned um, inclusion. You guys are doing a lot of that um, in, in the organizations and the organizations that you work with <clears throat> um, for, you know, allowing anybody to get those positions and and prioritizing it um saying hey we want to be an inclusive organization uh because that's how we better serve an inclusive community uh, we 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 want to do that here at alabama care we have a number of individuals that are anchors and uh, they are either individuals who receive services or they're family members um, and so i always say you guys know more than i do about this so I, you know, if you have a question, I want to bring you on and I want you to be an anchor and I want you to ask the individual about it. Um, well, I'd like to put a plug in for Jane Elizabeth Burdishaw and Alabama. CSAVR has a uh, diversity, uh, equity, inclusion, accessibility work group network. And Jane Elizabeth is one of our two leads in that, in that network. And the work that they're doing, the national work that Jane and her, Jane Elizabeth and her colleagues are doing, are bringing to light um, many um, opportunities for learning and growing and improving, but also where many of those gaps still remain. And quite frankly, um, there is a need in all communities, but I'm only looking at the space of the public VR program to develop um, the, the capacity of those who are serving looking like those who are served. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. I've come a long way over 41 years to where a lot of people that I worked with look just like me. And that would be, uh, at that time, a young white guy without uh, without an evidence, without evidence of a disability, and over the years we've begun to grow and understand the value of of being more inclusive, and we still have a long way to go. I want to be served by someone that represents me, that understands me, and where I'm coming from. So, kudos to Jane Elizabeth uh, for her leadership and uh, those others among our ranks that are doing good work, and we have. A ways to go still. Yeah, we love Mrs. Birdshaw here in Alabama. Uh, we've had the opportunity to have her on, I believe, twice, um, numerous conversations offline, but um, very proud of the work that she's doing here at ADRS. Now, <clears throat> what would you say is an underutilized service? This is a question that is asked by an audience member. Like, for instance, if I am speaking with a family of a son or a daughter, uh, who receive services and they're kind of transitioning out of the house, one of the first things I say is you should apply for food stamps. They should apply for food stamps. Um, that's almost always what I say is just start there and then kind of work up. But what is an underutilized service that you think more people should be asking for? I may frame it a little bit differently, not to avoid your question, but to try and clarify my, my thinking. Underutilized or maybe missed understood the vocational rehabilitation counselors their core skill set is in guidance and counseling mm -hmm. you know that is the service that is available 
to every individual that comes through the door. Now you may have in your mind where you wanna go, what you wanna do, what services you wanna access, but listening and being a part of a dialogue with a skilled vocational rehabilitation counselor, it may affirm what you already know, which that's a good thing, right? Or it may provide you with a broader understanding and appreciation for a world that may be beyond what you may have even considered to start off with. So I don't think I, I would say it's underutilized. It may be misrepresented or not fully understood from the sense of the value of that dialogue, that guidance and counseling that comes with that skilled, uniquely skilled vocational rehabilitation counselor. One that understands the, the, the significance of disability and how that intersects in the competitive integrated employment marketplace. Mm. I think it is very well put. It's his um, VR counselors are guidance counselors and they, as long as you're receiving services, they will be by your side whenever you need them. You can change VR counselors if you're unhappy, uh, get a new one. I recommend going until you are very happy with your, your counselor. And then they can kind of show you, hey, you're thinking about it this way. I wanna introduce this other aspect almost like a therapist a little bit as well. Um, and this is way it, what it might look like when you get there and you need to be thinking about this next part too. So kind of show it, it's like bringing back the curtain a little bit, like, okay, this is where we're going. Let me show you a little bit more of what I'm thinking here as well. Well said, well said. Um, speaking of kind of looking forward um, and maybe showing some turns in the road, what are some pain points that you're seeing VR organizations are having now? And what are some um, solutions that you're seeing being worked on? Yeah, you know, um, we are not alone in some of this, but it's certainly uh, some of those pain points are weighing heavy on our minds right now. Um, as many are experiencing in uh, the public and private workplace, the, the pandemic fallout is still real. So a critical need for a profession is bringing more qualified VR counselors and and allied professionals to some serve those who are coming to us. It's, there's not a quick fix to that. And until it's improved upon, it will be a challenge for us to really meet the needs of all. So frankly, for the national program that I represent, it's our number one priority and that of many of the colleagues that we have in this profession, really trying to pull out the stops to find some rev remedies. The reason for it um, being challenged, challenging are many, uh, hiring practices at the state level, pre-service training, the great resignation. I mean, good grief, I said in a Panera <laughs> line the other day that I thought, oh my gosh, I will never get through, only to get through the drive-through window and realize that there are only three people working in the whole shop. Um, so salary and benefits. So uh, we uh, are targeting nationally some specific strategies and working with some of those allies that impact those particular areas to be able to begin to um, mitigate some of that. But also, yeah. frankly, some are internal issues like processes. Um, you come to a vocational rehabilitation counselor with an expectation that you're going to get a job. Well, sometimes our own internal and external processes just slow down the speed. And so uh, looking nationally 
at uh, systems and processes that will uh, speed up. Um, the service delivery system um, is an area of, as you said, a pain point. And the last would be just public awareness. It's a longstanding issue that needs to be addressed so the public sees the value of vocational rehabilitation uh, programs and really become our partners in advocating for the program. And that in turn goes to that first pain point, getting people in the profession. So people who are interested, we can attract really good quality staff. So people, yeah. process, awareness, those are the three. I appreciate you going over those. I've spoken with a number of other organizations, business owners, and they're feeling that pain point right now of getting a good team together, incentives, those types of things. Um, and I think we're feeling it kind of all over the place. Uh, you mentioned the awareness as well there. I feel like we have come, I feel like there's really cool things going on in that. So we had an opportunity to interview um, the governor's office on disability executive director. Um, and he, we were got to talking about Game of Thrones and he absolutely loved Game of Thrones because, I, wow, crap, I can't really say it. I can't spoil the ending, but there are a number of individuals in Game of Thrones uh, who may qualify for services and they are some of the most prominent characters and end up being uh, leaders in, you know, at certain points there. And so the, the media, I think, is getting involved in doing a lot more awareness. We're seeing more um, Peanut Butter Falcon was a great movie. Um, I'd like to shout out that one. So seeing more disabilities in um, public eye, I think is kind of breaking down some of those those walls for us as well. Um, Kings, I'm going to read this uh, as well. Kim Spangler says, one of the gaps uh, VR can fill nationally is supporting students with services and funding through WIOA. Kim, I would like you to do a follow-up. I'm unfamiliar with WIOA. Uh, when a student with I with ID, intellectual disability, enrolls into a think college, even if or when it's out of state. Some states have three to four times more services and funding available than the others, which can create barriers and limit choices as it relates to post-secondary education for the purpose of advancing one's career. Um, so I think kind of hitting on the funding differences. In yeah, I, I understand. I, I sort of understand where Kim is coming from. And WIOA is actually the bigger part the bigger legislation, the umbrella of, uh, or, uh, legislation under which the Rehabilitation Act is amended falls under. So it's the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act. And Think College uh, is operated differently in uh, different states as far as how it's funded, how it's supported. Uh, there has been, Kim, um, in uh, previous administrations, um, specific strategies and initiatives to try and broaden uh, the service delivery for think colleges. So um, I guess I'm saying to you, I hear you, I feel you, uh, and I, I understand where you're coming from. And that may be uh, um, a future initiative for um, this or a future administration as well. Yeah, I'm, I just got introduced to Think College last year. Um, Kim Spangler and her son Colby have been on a number of broadcasts and we went and recorded some videos at the college. Um, are there think colleges in every state? Is that an opportunity? The program is available in every state. Um, it may be called something different, um, yeah. and it may be delivered in a certain way or different way. And you know, depends upon where it may be available in a state. Um, I let me let me restate that. I think it's available in every state. I know it's a national uh, initiative, 
Um, and uh, it's just dependent upon where a university may be open to taking it on and how the VR agencies may support that. Gotcha. Now you're speaking about uh, maybe this is something that uh, CS AVR may look into or, or the next administration. What are some other visions and goals that you and your organization are focused on over the next few years? Yeah, you know, um, I think probably um, looking at this area of the future workplace and getting some clarity from a legislative or a national policy standpoint, what we can and what we can do. Uh, there's, you know, there's um, uh, any number of layers of policies and procedures that may impede our ability or a state's individual ability to really pursue um, some of those, those opportunities. Um, I think the vision, uh, quite honestly, is to um, um, further the cause of competitive, integrated employment opportunities. And what I mean by that is more integration, uh, more career focus, more progression in, uh, in your selection of jobs and where you may be able to go within your job. I think that's going to be continually uh, the, the, the focus for the future. And then you wrap into that, um, you know, the uh, issues related to other restrictions on an individual with significant disabilities to be able to work, some of those disincentives that are out there, as we probably all on this podcast can list off a number, trying to work uh, the edges of the VR program for things like Social Security, IDEA, the pieces of legislation that run parallel and often intersect with our work, but then sometimes inadvertently create a barrier or a restriction uh, in being able to um, uh, further our cause. Medicaid, Medicare falls into that group as well. Yeah, I feel like for a lot of families, they hear a lot of these acronyms um, and sometimes we just say, oh, that's the state or the Fed when we kind of group everybody together. Um, and I think if we had more interaction and speaking between those agencies, make a more fluid experience for the individual and the family there. I feel like uh, VRs across the country are going to have a huge influx or an increase in individuals they serve. Since we're now serving younger individuals, we're going to be with them throughout their life, throughout their employment. Um, and you're going to be serving, you know, as individuals that you serve in early intervention, you're also going to be serving when they're 80. Uh, and so there's a longer lifetime there. So we need to get, we need to get more people uh, to counselors and we need to get more funding, more benefits to attract them uh, to, the, to the wonderful job and what they can do there. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, we're going to take a little bit of a left hand here. I did see that you guys offered to work on research projects on the website there. Uh, what are some examples of research that has been done in the past or maybe is being done right now? Yeah, you know, um, priorities for us are um, are tried and true 
services and processes that really lead to that objective of competitive integrated employment. So examples would be research that show the value of internal or, or, or virtual internships or virtual job fairs, uh, work-based experiences, uh, research that um, um, really focuses on the preparation and skills needed for effective vocational rehabilitation counselors, uh, business-based initiatives that increase access and success for um, uh, applicants and employees with disabilities, and also really focusing on the demographics as to who is being served and where those gaps are. Gaps as far as underrepresented uh, underrepresented groups of people with disability uh, and, and diversity backgrounds. What, what research can be developed to give good support to new ways of recruitment and retention? Um, research that can be developed to help serve more people with chronic and persistent mental illness. And that's an area that we have a tremendous need for growth. Uh, but all of that is kind of based upon this um, overarching view that the key is not to chase research for the sake of research, but focus on evidence-based practice that gives clear direction on how to implement, implement uh, needed change at that practitioner level. It has to make a difference that leads to increasing uh, the workforce participation of receivers with disabilities. Now, those partners that you're partnering with in that research, do they make those documents public? Or are they listed on CSAVR? Uh, we can go and find those, those findings. Yeah, many of them will be funded by uh, federal grant projects. And if the link isn't on our website, it's being disseminated by whatever federal entity has funded that the National yeah. Disability on uh, Institute, National Institute on Disability and Independent Living Research. Um, or there are even a National Health uh, um, and National Health Institute research, things like that. Uh, where those funding, where the funding for those many of those come from, and individual and universities and foundations as well. I don't know if they're doing it, but sometimes it can get a little overwhelming reading through a research document that may have a lot of jargon in it. I almost wish we could get like pie charts or you know info charts and that kind of stuff that make it easier for us to speak with our representatives. Yeah, and that's where I I say it has to be delivered in a way that it shows at the practitioner level, not just the researcher or um, somebody else level, but clear evidence uh, that actually shows a map or has a map towards implementing the recommended change or uh, suggestions for change. Yeah. Um, as we mentioned earlier in the conversation, you are a veteran. And when I normally think of VR services, I think of uh, individuals like my aunt that were born uh, with a disability, but quite, VR serves quite a few uh, or veterans throughout the country. What percentage would you say uh, those receiving services from VR are yeah. uh, veteran? Yeah, I can't give you a percentage because that's not a data point that is consistently captured. What I can say is that there's a number. And it may be a veteran with a disability that has service-acquired disability or post-service disability. Um, what, what I do think is really important to clarify is that in the case of veterans, we may be actually partnering, partnering with the Veterans Administration and serving that same veteran at the same time 
we would identify services that could be leveraged. For example, the state VR agency may pay for one service, while the Veterans Administration may pay for some other service at the same time. So yeah, there's a significant number. We have a national uh, memorandum of understanding with the VA uh, Vocational uh, Readiness Employment, uh, VR and E agency, that's the VR wing of, of, of Veterans Administration. Um, and at many places across the country at the state level, they will have similar kinds of memoranda that help identify in the state of Alabama or wherever. Uh, these are the services that uh, VR, state VR may pay for and Veterans Administration may pay for these depending upon a series of circumstances. Yeah, uh, to have that list would be very nice to navigate that. I know for a lot of individuals and families that are just starting to receive services or they're new to it, maybe a new injury, it can seem overwhelming. You're like, well, which department or which organization to kind of have a, a map there, a guideline uh, makes it very helpful. Um, so let's talk a little bit about advocacy. Now, I read that you've done some international advocacy overseas. So you're the head of CSAVR here in America, but you're broadening your reach and what we're able to do here to other countries. If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, uh, there's been a delightfully, you know, different part of my job with CSAVR, and it certainly was in the job description when I was hired, but it's become uh, more of what I do than uh, I really had anticipated. So I guess there's a couple of, of different lanes, if you will. CSAVR partners with a counterpart, like-minded organization in Western Europe, European Platform for Rehabilitation. They're headquartered in Brussels, Belgium, and a number of countries in Western Europe. Uh, specific agencies are members of EPR, European Platform for Rehabilitation, just like state agencies are members of CSAVR. Mm -hmm. And we've had a number of learning exchanges with them. Um, I've been there um, in several countries over the years, uh, sharing what we do in the states, particularly when it comes to kind of my lane is legislative and national initiatives and uh, shared with them what we do. But just as importantly, and probably more importantly for me, is listening to what's happening in, uh, in Europe as well. There are so many differences with the way that vocational rehabilitation services are funded and delivered, but then there are also many similarities and being able to understand those similarities and the differences that may very well be a benefit for us here and the states to consider. A good example is in Western Europe, there is um, a real robust network of social entrepreneur programs. Um, we in the States might call them self-employment, uh, but um, their term is social entrepreneurship. And um, um, there are things that they do that I would have never thought of here that's really exciting. So that's been an ongoing relationship, honestly, um, now it's more virtual because of the pandemic, but uh, we had exchanged uh, folks back and forth for a number of years. And then one other that you mentioned uh, that um, is a, a really has still has had an emotional impact on me is I was asked to um, work with the Vietnamese 
uh, Department of Labor. They refer to it in considerably different terms. And to go there along with another colleague from South Carolina and to look at their infrastructure, the way that they were delivering vocational rehabilitation services in Vietnam and offer mm -hmm. some insight and advice uh, and actually uh, developed a report for them to, to use. Um, I got to visit uh, throughout the, the northern part of the country, see a number of their workforce, I use the air quotes, workforce uh, offices, uh, which in some cases were in villages with um, torn out note paper with a job written on it and then taped to the wall. That was their workforce uh, center. And even residential programs, which were open air um, facilities that had um, essentially workshops is what they were. And um, what a, uh, uh, for, for a child of the 60s, as I am, uh, to be there uh, and see that environment was, um, was um, an experience, uh, the experience of a, of a lifetime without a doubt. To be able to travel through the country and see places and um, uh, iconic figures and things that historically meant something entirely different to me than it did of the people of Vietnam. So it's been a great yeah. experience. I hope to do more of that. Yeah, that's amazing that, um, so it's, I mean, you see it all the way around the world that societies, local communities, we wanna help each other. If you need a little bit more of assistance, uh, there's that innate thing with inside of everybody that we wanna help others around us. And to have that opportunity there and kind of strengthen and build that infrastructure We'll pay dividends for kids for the next couple hundred years and the difference that you can have just, if i can just insert to that point uh, real quickly it gives you an entirely different look on the world and can i give you this example i was one of three americans sitting in a room of probably 50 other vietnamese officials headsets on with an interpreter uh, sharing the message from a gentleman from the podium and the gentleman from the podium was talking to us about their needs and he was speaking about the impact of the American war, not the Vietnamese war, yeah. the American war, and the impact of unexploded, unexploded ordnance still in their rice paddies in Vietnam and the, uh, the implications of loss of limbs, loss of life. And um, as a result of those unexploded ordinances, ordinance said, American soldiers, uh, to his account, had left behind. He was actually a retired general of the Vietnamese uh, Armed Forces. So it gives you an entirely different perspective of the world. And I know we're talking about disability employment, but oh my gosh, the reality is we're all wanting to make the world a better place, right? And, yeah. you know, vocational rehabilitation can do that in many ways. Yeah. I don't walk out in my garden thinking there might be a mine here or something. Yeah, that's totally different. Man, that's crazy to think about. But we, like you said, to have that, to have that opportunity to have that impact in Southeast Asia, Europe, um, that's really cool. <laughs> now, what are some upcoming events and conferences you recommend that community members uh, attend, register for? Well, you know, uh, honestly, I, I I don't know what all might be. Um, 
upcoming in Alabama, but let me just give you kind of a general thought. And that is um, all states, Alabama included, are supported by a governor appointed rehabilitation council. And on occasion, they'll, they may host uh, public sessions, open sessions in the communities, particularly when there's proposed policy and some practice changes. Um, so if, if there's a real interest in that kind of thing, I would say try to find a way to stay close to those announcements, to look out for those. And one way to do that would be to become involved in the community by seeking out your local center for independent living. These aren't funded by vocational rehabilitation, but they're key players in many communities for communicating uh, services, conferences, uh, resources, and also helping people learn to advocate for themselves, for the community, for all people with disabilities. So um, I, I don't have a specific co uh, conference or event, but generally become active in your community through your Center for Independent Living. Look out for the opportunities to be a part of uh, those open forums and provide your input. Because at the end of the day, we work for those individuals seeking employment. We need to have their input and engagement. Yeah, and I think it's important they understand that <clears throat> these individuals and organizations are serving them. Uh, we've had the Independent Living Centers on you guys here in Alabama and you know who they are. Um, and I think you hit another point there is you have to get involved in your community. We've had uh, other guests say you have to find your team. You got to find your tribe, but you do have to get out there and you have to start forming relationships and you never know where that's going to go. But I promise you, you're going to be better off with the community that you're involved in. As we get to a close here today, we always like to ask, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel like individuals or family members could really take and benefit from hearing? Well, I am going to take a point of personal privilege here since you opened that up. I'll share with you uh, what I almost always say at the end of any engagement with uh, our professionals and allies in the field. And I, and I believe that it's even as true, if not more true, for individuals and families. And that, and that is that our community, this community of people with disabilities, we're a community that intersects with people of all backgrounds, ethnicities, races, culture, gender, sexual identity, social and political points of view, right? And as a result, we have a great, I think, opportunity, but even responsibility to be a champion or to be champions for social justice for all. In, in order for us to be effective as individuals, families, community, we really have to be in a place to ensure and insist that we create or participate in, in an environment that really, truly, honest to goodness, promotes critical, creative, and inclusive thinking. And I, I know that it may sound kind of grandiose when I say that, but think of the intersection of our community of people with disabilities. All of those, those lanes that I've identified, we cross through all of them, right? So if, if our community takes up that burden, cause for diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility for all, just think about what a tremendous voice that would be not just for our community, but you know, for our entire culture. So thank you for giving me voice to share that. 
Um, and gosh, it's really been good to be a part of you. And I, I really appreciate this, this opportunity. It's been tremendous. Well, we really appreciate your time this afternoon. Uh, it is an honor to be able to speak with someone as yourself and the impact that you've done there. Um, and kind of loop back. So we have the civil rights, disability rights, and this isn't it. We got to keep going. We got to keep advocating. Um, so keep up what you're doing. Disability does not discriminate. Uh, it affects us all. So that gives us an opportunity um, to have a well, a melting pot of change. So Mr. Wooderson, uh, Wooderson, thank you once again for your time this afternoon. I appreciate all you do. And at this point, we'll go ahead and end our, our broadcast and we'll wave at our respective cameras and we will say, see you guys.